Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back, book nerds, to another episode of New Books Network. I am your hostess with the mostess of the channels in language and media and communications, Lee Pierce. She, they pronouns, assistant professor of rhetoric at the State University of New York at Geneseo and host of the Rhetorically Speaking podcast. I know, long intro. Um, So for those of you who love or love to hate The Daily Show and or Fox News, I have got a show for you today. I am pleased to welcome... Daniel Goyang, author of Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States from Oxford University Press. Drawing on decades of research on political and media psychology, Young looks at two distinct genres of communication, which are called sort of irony and outrage or satire and outrage at, at different points, and sort of how each of these has a respective appeal to liberals and conservatives. And whereas liberal minds lean toward the ambiguity and play of irony, as exemplified by The Daily Show, conservative minds lean towards certainty and vigilance, as exemplified by, um, you know, a talk show such as Sean Hannity. And Young argues throughout the book that the roles these two genres play for their viewers are similar, right? They, They galvanize the opinion of the left or the right. They mobilize citizens around causes, and they allow them to express frustration with traditional news coverage while providing alternate sources of information and meaning. One key way in which they differ, however, um, which is Young's conclusion to the book, is their capacity to be exploited by special interests and political elites, something that we have seen quite a bit over the election. And now we are seeing, especially with the rise of this new technology, um, which I can never remember the name of it, begins with Parler, which is this new social media app for conservatives. So um, that's not in Young's book. That's just like the current event that I'm really obsessed with. So without further ado, let me kick it over to Dr. Young uh, to talk more about the book. Dr. Young, are you with us? Yes. Thanks, Lee. And yeah, hi. And are you are you a first name person? Or yeah, you, uh, I'm a first name person. Yeah, Dana rhymes with banana works great. Oh, Dana. So you're like a first name nickname person. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm a, I mean, you could just call me D if you want. We can go. <laughs> All right, D. Well, I'm going to kick it over to you. I'd love to hear more about, obviously, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. You're Because you're not only the author of this book, you're an improv comic, and you're also a, a esteemed uh, professor in the communication field. So we're also colleagues in a sense. And more about just kind of like what you love about the book and what got the project started. So I started looking at um, the possible effects of exposure to late night jokes starting in like the 2000 um, presidential election. And but not just looking at exposure to late night comedy as just another independent variable, like in a regression equation. Um, Instead, I started becoming interested in how and why those jokes might be processed differently in the brain. Like, what is it about humor that makes humor humor? And are there consequences of that sort of cognitively speaking? And it became clear that there's, you know, there's sort of a magic to what humor is and how it works. And that really shaped what I then studied for the next 20 years, um, which puts us in 2020, which is now. Um, So I think over that time, as I began looking at, you know, experiments and surveys, trying to quantify 
how and why political humor was processed cognitively in a certain way and what the effects of that were for things like attitudes, knowledge, behaviors, but also political efficacy, participation, political discussion, uh, the salience of certain political constructs in the brain. All of these things were kind of fascinating in their own right. And every time I presented on this stuff or published this stuff, folks asked me why it seemed to be that there were few examples of conservative satire. And I didn't really have a good answer for that. I, you know, I, I tried a couple different answers on for size. Um, I used an answer for a long time. That's the same answer that a lot of comics give, which has to do with the fact that satire challenges the status quo. And because conservatism is antithetical to challenging the status quo, it's just not going to be a good match. Um, but that didn't completely ring tr true, especially during the Obama years. I just was like, something. there's something else going on here that I think might operate at the level of the psychology of the individual. Um, and that brought me down this wild rabbit hole from political psychology, but also um, like moral foundations theory from Jonathan Haidt. Then there's all this wild neuropsychological research on actual differences in brain structures and brain activity between liberals and conservatives. And altogether, that brought me to a book project. But it wasn't until I was like a few chapters into the book project that it became clear that as I was articulating irony and satire as an aesthetic form that appeals to the psychology of liberalism, I had to also face that there was this other genre that also is tailor-made for the psychology and aesthetic preferences of conservatism. And that genre is like the political opinion talk genre, which is also referred to as outrage, not by me. I mean, yes, me, but I didn't make it. The, the term itself comes from the work of Jeff Berry and Sarah Soberai. So I built, built really heavily upon the work that they had already done in that area. Yeah, when I teach, I teach a comedy class, and I, I until I read your book, because I actually didn't know that that was a term, I called it the difference between doing comedy and ranting. <laughs> so what, and, 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 and sometimes now, especially I think with some of the latest specials, like from Dave Chappelle is a really good example, because um, I study, because this is obviously your book is more about talk, talk shows, and like you said, late night comedy, and I'm a, I, I only really like feel qualified to talk about stand up comedy. But you see the same kind of thing where you can tell when they're using irony to make jokes, but then there's just parts where they're kind of just ranting. And so, yeah, outrage and just kind of like earnestness expressing of an opinion, but in a way that seems stylistic, hyperbolic. So it's drawing attention to its style, which is different than just like talking to someone in earnest. Yes, because, you know, the idea, I like the idea of ranting because that is, it's just like, I'm just mad. I'm just mad. And when you think about, and this is why I think psychology fascinates me, is when you think about what's going on when you're angry and you think about how it kind of consumes you, like anger is consuming. And it would seem to me that that kind of discourse that comes out of the hole in your face when you're angry, right, <laughs> that that is going to be the kind of discourse where like, there's no room for other stuff. Like you're not going to be able to be playful and flip things around and like yep. experiment and make riddles. That's just not happening um, because anger is so all consuming. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
And so I think a really good example of this is in the opening, you tell this anecdote, which I can't believe I didn't know about, when Glenn Beck, who is just like a, kind of an icon of this outrage talk show culture, goes on Samantha Bee's Full Frontal, which is emblematic of the sort of satire daily show kind of mock news culture. That's um, And th the roles flip, or not so much flip so much as Beck reveals Samantha Bee to be doing outrage and not satire. Yeah. Do you want to maybe, because I just think that's a really great anecdote to kind of show the stakes of what you're talking about. I don't know if you want to recount that for folks or summarize it. Sure. So there is this wild moment that happens right after the 2016 election where Samantha Bee invites Glenn Beck on her show. And, you know, Glenn Beck, who has really been, he was sort of this iconic figure in the outrage genre you know, for on Fox News, doing these sort of conspiratorial rants, to use your word. And um, he shows up on Samantha Bee's show and he says, basically, like, why do you have me on here if not to mock me? And she says, no, I think that we're in a really important moment. And I think that we need to, like, come together and have sort of a bipartisan understanding, like in the interest of democracy. And he says, he basically agrees. And he says, I did a lot of damage with the shows, with the show that I produced. And I feel like you are turning into that same thing. And she's like, what do you mean? And he said, you are a catastrophist, basically just like I was, where you engage in these hyperbolic attacks and you make all these slippery slope. This is, these are not his words, but basically um, you make all these slippery slope arguments about how Donald Trump is going to be the demise of American democracy. And those are the same kinds of, of rhetorical turns that I used on my show. Um, and it's this wild moment. And I really wanted to get to the bottom of like, why did she have him on there? And I think that it was a gesture. She was performing this gesture of like, I get the fact that when I'm really angry, I run the risk of becoming this thing that I also think is dangerous. Now, I, I, I don't want to put those words in her mouth. She's never said that. But there is some recognition of that that comes through, you know, which I think is wild. Um, not to say that what Samantha B does on Full Frontal is just angry outrage, because I don't think it is. I mean, she and her writers work hard to put together like hilarious juxtapositions and use irony and flip things upside down. But there are also times when she is angry and she has mm -hmm. contempt and she is just angry. And when I, I had the opportunity to speak to Ashley Black, who wrote for Full Frontal, and she was wonderful. She's like so, so thoughtful. I would say more so than most writers who I've spoken with because she's also an academic. She, um, at some oh, point, I know yeah, she, at some point she was pursuing a PhD and she's just really thoughtful about her craft. And she was saying that, um, you know, the idea that what we do is just ranting <laughs> doesn't actually hold water because it would be so much easier to just show up, look at the headlines and just be mad and write mad things, right? Which is basically what Sean Hannity does, right? He shows up, he reads the news and he just rants about the news. And she's like, it is like 17 steps 
further removed from the content than that. It is you look at it, you read it, you're mad. And then you take that and you channel it into some kind of playful mechanism through which you can make a really thoughtful argument about the news without just being mad. And that's hard. It really is. Yeah, I'll never forget when I saw uh, this, that really iconic scene when John Stewart went on Crossfire when T- Tucker Carlson was still on it. And they want him to get, they want him, it, it's very funny because they want him to be funny. And he, they keep saying like, oh, we brought you on here so you'll be funny. And he'll be like, I can't be funny because I'm so sad about what you're doing. But he's doing it in a funny way. And it really strikes you like the amount of effort <laughs> that has to go into doing that where you're not just, where you're both trying to make an argument and also do it through all of these, you know, rhetorical tropes and figures like irony that require almost double processing. And you will actually make the argument um, kind of like in the middle of the book as you head into some of your research about just how much psychological processing is required to process just the layer of wordplay that goes into that stuff that there's actually maybe not as much available. Do you want to talk? Because that was interesting because you're actually sort of pushing against prevailing wisdom about how how much resources the brain has to make those arguments salient. Sure. So um, some of my prior work looked at sort of advancing a theory for how and why humor can reduce counter-argumentation in an audience. So in social science, I joke that we come up with theories to explain the things that we all know are already happening. And we just come up with complicated theories to explain why. And so, <laughs> so this theory was really just like, why is it that when somebody says, well, it's just a joke, that that's actually kind of a plausible thing. And it, you know, if somebody does agree that something is just a joke, they shouldn't be as mad. So why does that happen? Um, there's there's a, a competing theory that says that it's about sort of, you know, deciding that you're not going to engage with that content as serious content. My My theory is a bit less agentic, actually, because it says that the process of understanding humor requires so many cognitive steps and it requires such attention and focus that you actually don't have the cognitive resources left over to counter argue whatever the argument is being made or the judgment is that's being advanced through the text. So that's kind of, it, it basically is saying like, okay, if you advance something seriously, I'm going to get mad about it because it's not hard for me to unpack it. But if I, if something is advanced through humor, all of those gymnastics that I'm doing to unpack it and then derive what the argument is, all of that is taking sort of control such that I don't have any room left to do the other thing, which is, is this fair? Is this right? Does this match the other things I know to be true? Um, so yeah, so so this this is the counter argument disruption model. Um, some folks call it the resource allocation hypothesis, but that's what I wrote in two thousand. I published that in two thousand eight. Um, so then, you know, moving forward from that, looking into irony in particular, there is so much work from neuropsych that, like, I mean, it, folks love neuropsychologists love studying irony and they love studying it in like patients that have brain injuries or like different processing disorders because irony is notoriously difficult to comprehend. And there are a lot of situations and a lot of characteristics of people that render them unable 
to process irony in the manner in which it was intended. And some of this has to do with um, a lack of ability on the part of the recipient to process the sort of nonverbal cues or the kind of emotional cues that might signal like wink, wink, nod, nod, like I'm being funny, you know? Mm. Um, but another piece of it has to do with the fact that at, as irony is, is consumed, the first thing that we do, and this is not my research, this comes, I mean, there's a whole bunch of, of folks who study this in neuropsych, but as irony is processed in the brain, the first thing we do is re we read the literal text, okay? So there you have step one, you're reading the literal text. Then using cues, either from the message sender, from the context, from the source, or from something within the text itself, we then recognize, hold up, this actually is probably ironic. At which point we go back, we process it again, inverted, right? And then we come away and say, what then is the intention of the message sender based on this reading, based on the inverted reading? And the intent of the message sender in political irony is usually some larger critique of the system, usually some kind of claim about the way things ought to be in contrast to the way things actually are in the world. And that, let's be honest, like that's a beast. That's just a beast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And hugely unfunny when we talk about it like that too. Um, well, and so dependent on the willingness to cue because one of the things, so, so in classical, so this is interesting too, because in classical rhetoric, uh, irony is defined as when A returns as not A. So, right, just like we said, it's like you say thing, but then you say other thing, which reveals the first thing to actually be its inversion. But you have to cue that the second thing is an inversion. And so, for example, when Trump said, we, we you know, like, oh, the, it's like bleach for your veins. I, that's not exactly what he said. And then everyone was like, why did you tell everyone that it was like bleach? And he was like, well, I was being sarcastic, which is a genre of irony. If you go back and watch that closely, there's no cue at all. So then the question becomes, is he bad at cueing or is sarcasm now just a defense exactly. for yeah. having said something irresponsible? And so the public just is not just like it's impossible for them to be literate enough because anybody can lay claim to irony without the cueing ability that irony requires. Yeah, this is so the, it's, it's a whole knot of, of crazy. It, it, what's interesting to me as you say this, I think a lot about, you know, folks often will say, what about all the irony of like the alt-right online memes? Oh, like the lulls. Yeah, the memes and stuff. And I'm yeah. like, well, you know what? If you actually look at those and you actually unpack them, they are not ironic at all. They say they're being ironic, but there is no inversion of the valence. When they say the way to make your, to keep your wife happy is to sell your dishwasher and get rid of all her shoes or whatever the hell they say, there is no inversion there because their ideological perspective is one that embraces traditional gender norms. It embraces the notion that women are engaged in the domestic sphere and are pregnant. So therefore, this joke does not constitute irony. Yeah. You know, and yeah. Have you read um, Make America Meme Again? Oh, I will send you a copy. It's by some rhetoricians that I love. They actually came on the podcast last year and they talk all about the the difference between the, the lols, like lolcats of the 2000s and then the lulls, L-U-L-Z, and how that that ironic framework has been used. Yeah, it's exactly kind of what you're talking about. But yeah, if you do a close reading as someone who understands this stuff, there's no cue 
that any of this is meant to be interpreted ironically. In fact, what it is, is hyper literal. Yes. Yeah. Which is not a vocabulary word we have, right? We have no. literal and irony, but we don't have this other thing that the alt-right depends on, which is hyper literality. Oh, I love that. No, that's- Yeah. Weird. So I'll, I'll send that over to you. Um, But then how do you see this? So just kind of like getting it back to the book, how do you see this showing up in the two different genres and their and the way that they make appeals to the audience? Right. So we haven't gotten into sort of the psychology of liberalism and conservatism yet. So let's put a pin in that for a second. Just I'll just say that. So satire, we know, relies on this sort of structure of ironic inversion, right, where the text is incomplete until the participation of the audience you know, brings meaning to the text, which really is the case for most texts. Right. However, because irony is so inherently ambiguous and the argument is never advanced explicitly through the text. It's usually, it comes through the juxtaposition that the audience has to sort of solve. It is far more ambiguous than traditional discourse, right? On the other side, um, is this sort of political opinion talk programming? And and the reason that I kind of enjoyed writing this book was that it kept, there were these two parallel tracks and everything sort of just fit together where it's like, okay, if irony is inherently sort of a mix of serious and play and a mix of entertainment and information, and it embraces that hybridity and it's completely ambiguous and incomplete. And yet, uh, uh, you know, delivers political meaning for its liberal audience. On the other side, political opinion talk is the opposite in every way, right? It technically, these analysis shows like Hannity and Ingram and Tucker Carlson, these are technically analysis programs they are guided by entertainment norms but they do everything they can to push that from your mind to be able to market themselves and build themselves as journalism as news as serious right to have some kind of moral authority over what they're talking about where john oliver and trevor noah and john stewart colbert they do not want moral authority they've abdicate abdicated moral authority because once they have moral authority they then lose their court jester position, right? So in these political opinion talk shows, you have this sort of strong moral authority. We come across as serious. We bill ourselves as news. And when you look at the content or, or the, the package, the rhetorical package that they deliver their arguments through, this is a package that is predicated on didactic, clear, efficient speech, identifying threats, identifying enemies, hyperbolically presenting dangers, doing it in a way where you never ask yourself, what did they really mean? It's kind of unclear. You always know what they mean. It's never unclear. Um, so to me, I thought these, there's something huge going on here. And I think that it, it is far deeper than just some kind of like production values on the part of these two networks, like Comedy Central versus Fox. It's far bigger than that. Um, so that's what brought me to that political psych literature. Mm -hmm. And then, what, so in terms of, of your original research, what kinds of findings... I mean, I, I know I read the book, but like for our audience, what do you think are some of the, what do you think are some of the findings from that research that you've done to to kind of like test and advance those theories that they might be interested in? Right. Well, some of the things that I've looked at really are, are just trying to understand uh, the psychological traits that other folks have found 
that correlate with political ideology and how those same traits might shape our preferences for certain kinds of content. So let me just say the the huge amount of literature that exists and it exists in sort of a cross-cultural context, um, a lot of it coming from, um, well, various political psychologists, but there, it, it looks at things like need for cognition and need for cognitive closure as the sort of underlying psychological traits that then sort of logically map onto social and cultural ideology. So social and cultural conservatives, that is conservatives who are conservative on issues like immigration, race, sexuality, crime. These folks also tend to be higher in need for closure and less tolerant of ambiguity than liberals. Okay. They also tend to be lower in need for cognition and more likely to engage in heuristic processing than liberals, which actually makes sense if you think about what need for closure is and what it motivates, right? It motivates you to, you, you know, come to decisions quickly. Um, you want, you want information that is very clear, that is not left open-ended, right? So in terms of understanding why it is that these things exist the way they do, a lot of this comes down to this sort of this concept from from Jost about motivated social cognition and how we think about threat. And, you know, we know that conservatives are significantly more likely to have a higher threat salience than liberals. And the thought is that this sort of focus on threat and the idea of threat monitoring uh, then on the part of conservatives makes them less comfortable with the idea of the unpredictable or the novel or the uncertain. Okay. So whereas liberals who are less concerned about threat are like, sure, <laughs> it's unpredictable. It's novel. It's uncertain. That's awesome. Like there's no dangers. Let's just have fun. So this, to me, this really resonated, you know, sometimes you hear findings and you're like, that does not make any sense. And other times you're like, that completely makes sense. <laughs> and this, liter mm. this literature really makes sense. Um, so I did some work where, yes, I confirmed that these relationships exist, right, between need for closure and cultural conservatism, um, and also need for cognition, meaning a lower need for cognition or a lower enjoyment of thinking among social conservatives. And I looked at how that explained the appreciation for irony and hyperbole uh, in the context of humor among liberals and conservatives. And sure enough, especially need for cognition explained some of the reduction in appreciation for irony among conservatives. That to me was like, okay, so something about psychology is at play here. I also looked at the, in a different data set, I looked at how much people report watching different programming. So satire shows versus these political opinion talk shows. And what I found is that for the lib for liberals, tolerance for ambiguity is part of what predicts their exposure to satire. And when you look at, and when you split it out by, by party, you also find that the liberals who are most likely to be consuming satire and ironic satire in particular are the ones who are highest in tolerance for ambiguity. Mm. Whereas if you look at like Rush Limbaugh or, Han or Hannity, the conservatives who are most likely to be watching those shows are those who are lowest in tolerance for ambiguity. 
and it, these these mirrors to me were kind of beautiful because they were quite you know we love in in theory we love parsimony we love elegance and they just this, these mirrors were like some, what something is definitely going on here um so i would say more than anything my work is an attempt to provide an explanatory theory that integrates various literatures from political psychology communication media theory you know history to try to explain or help us get our heads around why our media environment looks the way it does. Yes, and speaking of which, there's this whole other piece about the rise of the sort of media consolidation and the 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 way like especially with the Fox News. Do you do you think that that plays a role like before that had happened, do you think you would have seen similar results or do you think that yes, but they've been exacerbated by media consolidation? As far as I am concerned, the the way that this has played out would may have fallen apart if any one of these factors had been different. Ooh. Truly. Because, you, right? Because you, yeah, consolidation of media ownership through the 80s and 90s meant a change in the mandate of journalism. It meant that journalism was designed for profit instead of as a public good. That meant mm -hmm. a change in how news was produced, a change in how, how news was marketed. It also meant a bit of erosion of various kinds of reporting and investigative journalism, and international news. The idea being we give people what we want and not what they need. At the same time as this is happening, we're in the wake of Vietnam and Watergate, trust in institutions is going down, trust in governments going down, trust in news is going down. At the same time that you have increased political polarization that started in the 90s, Gingrich contract for America in 1994, this shift mm -hmm. towards, towards um, more extreme political positions on the part of both parties in Congress, which then trickles down to the public. The public becomes more policy polarized then they start to hate the other side more. They then look for news that is, actually, how do I say this? They then, because of this phenomenon we call the hostile media effect, the public then has this perceptual error that they make where when they are exposed to objective reporting, they think it's biased against their side, right? right? Then at the same time that all of that stuff is happening, you have the rise of cable and internet which fractures our media ecosystem, the economics of that media ecosystem mean that instead of appealing to a mass audience, you have teeny tiny little homogenized audiences where you're going to sell, you know, five hour energy to dudes at Comedy Central and you're going to sell like American flag pins at Fox News. And the system now, the economics of the system that allow it to exist, perpetuate these differences and mandate these homo little homogenous audiences. So like this, to me, this whole, this is the backdrop. This is the whole thing that sets the whole stage up. And if any one of those things had been different, I don't know that we would see things evolve in the way that they did. Mm -hmm. Well, and that raises an interesting question because obviously like being in the same field, I know the, I know the whole, like, we can't really predict 
the future. We're not historians and we're not future future tellers. We're like diagnosticians sort of. But it, one of the things I think is an interesting question is the way that the the liberal conservative is treated in the book is something that is, right? It's it's sort of an identity category. And so if you are this, then you like this. But it does but it kind of like makes me wonder, and you talk about this a touch in the conclusion, but then is then can either of these discourses then attract you from across the aisle, so to speak, and change the way your brain works such that you and I think about this a lot with like how Bernie supporters defected to Trump. Uh, and I wonder like how does that fit into the framework? And then I also I wonder because again, the book is about specific genres. And so it's really not fair to talk about Trump's Twitter, for example, as another case study for the book, because that's not what the book is about. No, but, but it does make you do wonder because it totally fits anyway. Well, are we seeing a hybridization too? Is that the next evolution that that just just basically starts to become a self-referential cycle where it's going to be too hard for people to speak across these, these differences in yeah, cognitive that, processes? That to me is my, it, one of my large concerns is that the more we create these partisan identities that become all encompassing and the more we express ourselves in these very unique ways, the harder it's going to be to connect with one another. Um, and as much as, you know, folks on the left and on the right are like, well, forget it. I don't want to connect, you know, screw those people. Um, if there is no mechanism for communication and no mechanism for discourse, we're screwed. We don't exist anymore. We just don't. Yeah. Well, and you saw this happen with the election, right? Because it's sort of like if if here if as like just as a liberal, because that's what I am, if my two options are one, go all liberal with my play and irony and try to recruit to my point of view or go speak their language of outrage. It doesn't seem like either one of those worked. Yeah, no, it's true. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's I mean, it's it's a really important question that the book raises. Um, and I, I mean, I appreciate it because obviously like the next phase would be to provide some answers, but I think the book does a really good job of, of tracking a history of how we got to where we are. Yeah. I think, I think that where, where I go from this is not necessarily, like you said, we're not, we can't tell the future, but where I take these questions is to sort of broader, broader concerns about what this means for our media ecosystem writ large. What does it mean when our identities then shape so much of how we experience the world that people live in different worlds. And um, some, some of the stuff I've been doing of late relates to COVID and mm. how, how we as identity driven animals will seek out information that supports our own identity and pleases our sort of psychological needs, pleases our aesthetic preferences and we end up in this total feedback loop, right? Where the folks who are high in need for closure and want to monitor for threat, they, and, but also are all about like individual freedom, they talk to people who are like-minded, they watch Fox News, they're told that masks do not protect you and mm -hmm. you know, social distancing is, and shutdowns are going to kill the economy and destroy the American way. Right. Whereas you have other folks on the other side who tune into information that embraces science. That's another thing I'm fascinated by right now is the idea that this high need for closure among social and cultural conservatism 
among social and cultural conservatives and the lower need for cognition and the reliance on heuristics all tie into this, um, what um, Garrett and Weeks have, have looked at as epistemic motives that can mm. increase the likelihood of this sort of like going with your gut, you know, like, oh, I go with my gut. Like scientists can't tell me what to do. Like I go with my gut. And what happens to those people under conditions of uncertainty when conspiracy theories are presented that confirm their priors and provide answers and closure and new heuristics, meet, meet those heuristics that they already have in place. And um, as far as I'm concerned, what we're seeing right now, you know, this, you know, we're re recording this as Trump is refusing to concede the election and the same exact processing, the same exact gameplay that we see in the face of data about climate change, about masks, about social distancing, about COVID deaths, mm -hmm. we're seeing in the context of data about election fraud, right? Where it's like, no, yeah. but you know right. what? I don't care what the, you with your fancy data, okay. But like, uh, I, I know in my gut, it feels like it's happening, right? It feels like climate change is not true. It feels like masks could make me sick. It feels like people aren't dying of COVID. It feels like there is voter fraud. Um, and to the extent that our media environment feeds back into that loop, reinforces those narratives rather than challenging them, we are screwed. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, yeah. And the like things like Google algorithms too are just awful because it's almost hard to get, it's almost hard for people to see the other side because you have to, like you said, because once you get into one of these niches, you're not exposed to stuff that doesn't agree with you. Yeah. Or that doesn't speak in your genre. And so you just become more and more increasingly immersed in your own way of thinking and and, res and resistant to other ways of thinking. Yeah. You know, that some of the um, journalism about, you know, radicalization through Facebook and this, this one really kills me because I feel like, you know, there's not a whole lot of evidence of this sort of radicalization through Facebook. And I'm like, yeah, okay, but do we know that that is because it's not happening or do we, or is it because we don't get access to Facebook's data, you know? Right. And then you have like wonderful journalism, like McKay Coppins has done a, a couple pieces um, at the Atlantic, um, looking at like creating a fake Facebook account, following some right wing sites, and then just see what happens to my newsfeed. Right. Yes. And then it's like, well, here it is. This is, these are the data. These are the observations. We're watching how this happens. Um, and it's, it's very clear that the logics and economics of these platforms combined with these patterns that I've been talking about, about these links between psychology and aesthetic preferences um, and politics, there's, there's a real recipe here for, for the demise of a democratic republic. Yeah. Um, and on that note, I did promise the audience some laughter in the title of your book. <laughs> so um, I was wondering, because one of the because one of the downsides to these interviews is that we do a great job of talking about overall arguments and frameworks so, so that the listeners can have the takeaway, but then they really need to read the book for sort of the nitty gritty, uh, is that they don't get to see all of the case studies that you draw from. And so I thought it might be cool just kind of to give them something a little bit more entertaining toward the end that isn't so dire. 
Could you talk about sort of what do you what do you see being your fate? If you had to pick like a favorite exemplar of the satire genre that appeals to the liberal brain and then the flip side on the conservative and the outrage, what do you think your two picks would be? Oh, um, let me start with the outrage one. Let me start with the outrage pick. Um, I would say for me, my favorite, favorite example of outrage is anything that Sean Hannity does that makes these sort of, um, wild claims about deep state operatives undermining Trump. Um, and uses this language of like these, you know, there's a sh- people in the shadows in government undermining Trump. Um, and the reason that I love it so, so much and what I trace in the book is that there is a historical precedent here that also is on the side of far-right conservatism that comes out of the 1950s and the early political talk radio host that sort of created the genre that Hannity and Limbaugh and these guys are now in. Um, and folks like Clarence Mannion and Dan Smoot, who engaged in almost the identical rhetorical tactics. And that the reason that I love the deep state claim so much is because of the idea that here you have um, one of these radio hosts from the 1950s who published a book called The Invisible Government. The invisible government is the same argument as the deep state, that there's all these communists that are sort of running around the bowels of like the White House and Capitol Hill and trying to undermine everything and and bring communism into Washington. Um, And I love it so much because it's like it's almost you almost have to like applaud its consistency. It's like, wow, they really do stay on message. (laughs) Really, It's been 70 years. They're so on point, you know. Yeah. Do you read Ian Haney Lopez's work? He he does stuff with, I think he's like a, I can't remember. He, I think he's in like legal comm. I'd have to check, but he does stuff with message discipline. Um, and especially the way that the right stays on message about racism when really it's actually about profits. Yeah. His, I mean, his stuff about ma- message discipline is really important because in speaking to your point is that outrage lends itself really well to sound bites that reinforce this because there's no ambiguity, no play. So it's very much like easy to put into the 24-hour news cycle to tweet, to read, because it has no it has no gap in meaning. And so your, your book really lends a lot of credence to this messaging discipline that really tends to hurt the left a lot. Yeah, because they're like little self-sustained little nuggets. And they resonate with all the other messaging that is out there already. And there's a lot of redundancy and redundancy yields retention. And so therefore, it's super efficient. It's also so good at mobilizing because it's threat oriented and it's so clear. Um, so then the, the examples that I'll give you from Colbert, Colbert is just so smart in his little juxtapositions. Like there's one example that is, you know, when he says here in the United States, we believe that it is, you know, morally depraved to kill a man. And so, Oh, he's funnier than I am, but he basically says, and, and, and to prove it, if you kill someone, we're going to kill you. You know, I, I just love that. The Another one that he did was the idea of um, during the impeachment hearings, when he said, um, today we're going to learn if breaking the law is illegal. That's a good one. <laughs> and recently, recently he tweeted about the election Um we're going to learn if the person, if the person who won the election is actually the winner. 
or something like that, you know, you know, but, yeah. but all of these are so delicious because they, they reveal through the juxtaposition, they reveal a hypocrisy. And once they reveal a hypocrisy, you got to get in there and be like, yeah, that doesn't seem to make sense. Why are we doing that? What is that? How is that happening? And in order to like shed light on that, you have to ask yourselves, like, what is the difference between the way things actually are versus the way they should be? Mm. So all of these ironic satirical jokes point to a more desired state, that one that we deserve and that we shouldn't, we should work towards. You know, folk, folks have t- said to me that like, well, satire is so negative. It's all like complaining. And I am like, I am, I see it as the opposite. It tells us what, what is wrong so that it acknowledges we can do better. And it says there is something better and that we can get there. Yeah. And, and this may also speak to sort of other arguments I've heard about how con- the conservative bias tends to be toward nostalgia for a non-existent past and getting back there. And that tends to be sort of an easier thing to do than the liberal bias toward, not bias is the right word, but the preference or whatever, for thinking about alternate futures, which is like, what does that even look like? And a lot of times it looks like critiquing the present because it doesn't hold up to its own standards, which is harder work than being like, oh, we used to have, we used to have this thing called moral decency. Let's go back to that. Even if it never really existed. Even if it never never was, but we all sort of agreed that it was. What I love about that is that that again, you know, confirms the, the idea of like the liberal tolerance for sort of openness and ambiguity, imagination and exploration. It's like, yeah, we don't know what's next. And like, that's cool as hell. Like, let's figure out mm-hmm. what it could be. Right. What could it be? Yeah. Like I did some work um, with my colleagues at University of Delaware on um, attitudes towards transgender people and transgender rights. And, mm-hmm. you know, the idea of gender fluidity and gender as a social construction is so such like the perfect issue to reveal these psychological differences between conservatives and liberals. And sure, part of, part of it is, by, is driven by religious values, right? But religious values themselves and the inclination towards religiosity itself could be seen as an outgrowth, an outcome of a need for closure and a need for heuristic decision-making. Um, so we found that uh, part of what explained support for transgender rights is also tolerance for ambiguity. Oh, yeah. which makes sense given yeah. that it, that you're you're out of the binary certainty. Exactly right. Male, female, right? Yeah. Like think about huh. and and then so I once once I started thinking about this, I'm like, oh my god, I want to apply this everywhere, right? So then I started looking at um, is is it possible that part of conservatives' sort of you know dislike of celebrity political expression. Yeah, sure, it's because celebrities are disproportionately liberal, but is it also possibly because of the hybridity of that kind of expression where it's like you're you're in the wrong lane? You hear the like stay in your lane. Get out of this, you know, this pick a lane. And yes, once again, I'm uh, the work that I'm doing right now shows that tolerance for ambiguity above and beyond ideology and party predicts support for celebrity political expression. Do you think that tolerance for ambiguity can be taught to yes. adults? Like I understand yes. children, I've I done a lot of research on that. So you do. Yes, yeah. for sure. But assuming assuming you can get out of the self-reinforcing media cycle. Yes. And well, actually, hugely, you know what predicts it? 
is what? higher education. Which yeah, we could get surprising. into a whole little conspiratorial rant about the undermining of secondary education. Well, that's not conspiratorial. They've done studies that show a directly inverse relationship between amount of money spent in public schools and the left or right leaning tendencies of a state. Right. Well, then, then there is so, no like Mississippi wow. is Mississippi is like least in spending but highest in likely to vote red right. r- red politicians. Yeah. So it. it that's not even a conspiracy. That's, that's, just, well, that's just data. But also, again, I don't need your data in my face, Dan. Get your data out of my face. There's also the idea about like um, certain kinds of experiences, like travel to other countries, study abroad, and that kind of stuff, speaking a foreign language. Hello. You know, we have a, many schools have a foreign language requirement in their College of Arts and Sciences. And people are like, why? Why do I need to speak foreign language? Well, because it does all kinds of stuff. Because the second that you learn how to speak another language, all kinds of things change for you. All kinds of things. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm always telling people they have other times, they have other tenses in other language. Like, you didn't even know there was a whole time you didn't know existed till you learned French. Right? Exactly <laughs> right. And there's, you know, the idea that, like, there's formal and informal. That kind of creates a whole new world for you. The idea that when you meet someone that you've never met or someone that's older than you, you use a particular thing like, oh, that's interesting. So all of those things create tolerance for ambiguity. And my, of course, because I'm, a, I'm an improviser, I'll say, if you want to like get on the tolerance for ambiguity train real quick, you study improv. Sure. Study improv, you know? Yes. And yeah. you can't plan ahead. You, you just wait to see what your scene partner offers up and you go from that place and that place only. You don't know. You just go. Yeah. Well, and I think too, um, and then and then we'll kind of get to the conclusion because I'm trying not to abuse everyone everyone's time. But I think also getting back to your COVID research, and I've been talking a lot about this with my students, is like if there's anything that COVID has taught us, it's that this certainty that we were seeking was never there anyway, because a lot of the things you're thinking now that COVID is around, you were thinking a year ago. You just didn't know that you didn't have the certainty that you thought you had. And so I'm not a silver linings person around COVID. I mean, I think that this is some dire stuff that is pointing to things to come if we don't get our acts together. But the one thing I will say is that this is really an opportunity for people to kind of realize that this need for certainty was always a false illusion anyway, because COVID happened whether you what you you thought you thought that you had a job you thought that you were going to go to school tomorrow you thought all this stuff and then covid happened and you you man like assuming you're still alive and you haven't died because of lack of preventative measures you are still pushing forward which shows how much ambiguity you can actually handle which how, yeah and and how much ambiguity is actually real i think right for, right yeah. yeah for folks who lose someone close to them um I think this is huge. And, and I'll say, you know, I, I was widowed when I was 30 and oh, uh, my, my husband passed and I had our young son who was a year and a half old. And I had always been highly routinized, high need for closure, very goal driven, mm-hmm. um, very little tolerance for like changes in plans. And, you know, my late husband was quite the opposite of me. And through his, he had a brain tumor and through him dealing with that and watching how he kind of just rolled with it, it, it did help inform the idea that like, nothing is, nothing is certain. We're all, we have no idea what's happening today or tomorrow or the next day, no idea. And so you got to just roll with it. And the idea that things, things that 
we think of as real and necessary are not real, nor are they necessary. <laughs> right? Like, like, yeah, well, like your job this is another big, or, big you know, sh- you know, I have to do this thing yeah. by this time. Oh, there's a deadline. That doesn't really matter. It's not real. Right? Like the idea that all yeah. of a well, and- airlines started waiving all these fees and you're like, oh, those weren't real. We knew that. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well, and it translates so well to the, to the, the outrage cult, because, you know, so much of outrage depends on how much you have to believe that threats are real. And, and a lot of that comes down to reminding your brain. I, like, I love asking my dad, like, what Mexican stole your job? Like, tell me the Mexican that showed up and took the job that you deserved out from under you. And he was like, well, I don't know. I was like, do you know anyone that that's happened to? He's like, no. I was like, okay. He's like, but I know what happens. And I was like, see, this is where you have to just tell your brain that's silly. But that's that's that epistemic belief system again. It's like no, yeah, I, because yeah. that, because the data don't matter. I saw some guy online who was responding to a climate scientist who said, "Oh no, all all that you have." This blew my mind. He said, "All you have are data and theories." And I was like, "What in the hell else would there possibly ever be?" Which are also very different things. Yeah, and are also. The two of them are huge. Yeah, if you just had theories, maybe, but if you also have evidence, and I like how I called it data, not evidence or facts. He said data and theories, and I was like, those literally are the two sides of science. (laughs) And if you've got both, you're awesome. Yeah, and if you've got replicable data. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I really was fascinated. I was like, what else does he think there is? Guts, guts, gut, gut intuition. Guts. There's the gut, and my gut, and my gut tells me it's not global warming because it's 45 degrees. Right. Exactly. No, I'm serious though. I think I think this is the problem, right? There's just this. I think about this with campaign finance too. There's such a big gap between what we understand as money as an ordinary person and the kinds of money that are funneling through special interests, which is something we didn't get to talk about in the book. But in the in the end of the book, you talk a little bit about how. You're you're pretty even handed about these two genres, right? So obviously, like as a liberal, I want I want satire to win, but you're very even handed in saying like they they both play a role, they both played a different. And it's not like any it's not like liberals don't lean don't have outrage sometimes and vice versa. No, but just to be clear, I do have I do have a side in terms of the genres. um, Irony is far less dangerous than outrage in terms of the psychology of the left and right. That's where right, I'm even that's handed, yeah. right? Because liberals yeah. and conservatives, like if we didn't have any conservatives, people like you and me would be screwed, right? First yeah, of all, sure. we wouldn't even have a nation state, right? And second of all, if you know your house burns down, it burns to the ground. So things like that. However, it's mm-hmm. the exploitation of those psychological traits, right? The special, yeah, and the special, and the way that outrage funnels special interests, which is something you touch on yes. at the end of the book that I thought was just so important because people just don't understand the role of special interests in elections. Like it's so disconnected from how we think of money, um, they can't even imagine the millions and millions of dollars that go through just a single single candidate for a small time campaign. Oh yeah, I don't even know what the numbers would be. I have no idea. I saw. Well, we don't know because all the dark money and stuff from like Jane Mar- Jane Mara's book about how hard it is to trace it because of how, you know, since Citizens United, it's just become increasingly less important that people disclose this stuff. Yeah, yeah, we have no idea, and it's so funny because right now we are in such a pickle. There are so many other pickles that we are in 
that campaign finance is like not even on my radar right now. And that is one of the biggest problems in American democracy. But it's like right now there are 17 other problems in American democracy. So like that one, I can't even like pay attention to right now. Yeah, but um, I think that's a good place to close, right? That sort of they're even handed in terms of having the cognitive processing or or the political ideology. There's no there's no right or wrong here, but one is far more exploitable and causes more damage than the other one. Yeah. Um, and with that said, is there anything else about the book you want to highlight or tell us about new projects? We talked a little bit about your COVID research going on, which sounds fascinating. Yeah. So uh, I'm really I'm really really excited about that. I I'm also. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, this is not this is not a project, but I'm filming a pilot for uh, the Great Courses, which is, um, you know, you can you go and and deliver lectures, and then people who aren't enrolled in your classes can like view your lectures. And I really love oh, cool. that idea. And it's funny because, you know, my husband is like was a huge huge fan of the Great Courses. He's he's listened to all these lectures on like. I don't know, history and Roman history and whatever. So I got this email inviting me to, to do something for them. And of all the things that I've done, that was the one that my husband was like, oh, really? <laughs> it's like all of a sudden I've made it. But um, yeah, so I'm, ex- I'm, a rock. I'm excited about that. And uh, oh, Awesome. And, and that's going to be out soon enough to put in the show notes or no? Um, no. Okay. All right. Well, everybody keep it, keep an eye out for that. We will put a link to your website. And so that way you can, people can check oh, that out. Oh, do you know what? Do you know what? Um, there is one project that I, that is just out that's really fun. And that is a consideration of the Lincoln project through the lens. Oh, yeah. yeah. Through the lens, lens of the, the work that I talk about in my book. I was going to ask you about the Lincoln project. I'm so glad you brought that up. So we will put that in. Yeah. If I'll get a link and put that in the show notes. I will check it out. And also uh, listeners at home can check it out as well. Great. And then is there a book that you would like to recommend for our next interview? And by ours, I mean mine, but you can certainly come too if you would like. Yes. To. Okay. So this book is was published right around the time that I had wrapped my book. And it is Liliana Mason's Uncivil Agreement. And it's about this phenomenon that she documents with all this amazing data about what she calls social sorting in the United States, where the two political parties have become increasingly internally homogenous on fundamental issues like religion, race, geography, et cetera. And she makes the case that because now the two parties aren't just about policy differences, but about these sort of primal group association differences, it allows mm. for our social identities to very quickly become activated towards like partisan warfare and is is very dangerous. Yeah, yeah and you're seeing that play out right now with like the the death the death threats against the liberals for stealing the election and it seems just like like uh I don't know about that. <laughs> that seems really aggressive. Like nobody was doing that in 08 even though people were pissed. I didn't see the same amount of like threats of violence. Yeah. And, and I think that once, when you look at this sort of like separation of the country, geographically, racially, in terms of religiosity, it really is wild. It's wild. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and we have just skimmed the surface of the book. We haven't even talked about um, the sort of the history you give about the rise of counterculture comics versus what you call the hate clubs of the air. And then also some of the, the aesthetics of outrage. 
And so what are the characteristics? What does it look like? Same thing with satire. So I cannot... Oh, and then you also have an adorable chapter that I love about when each one tried to switch. And so <laughs> they, had, they, had, right, they had programming of liberal outrage and then they had conservative satire and they were both disasters. So the book is definitely worth picking up. We've only skimmed the surface. And again, um, I would just like to remind everyone that uh, book budgets being what they are, we would certainly love if you would like to pick up your own copy of Irony and Outrage, The Polarized Landscape of Rage, Fear, and Laughter in the United States by Danigo Goldthwaite-Young from Oxford University Press. But if you cannot, some things you can do are request it from your college university library, assuming that they still have a budget to buy books, or request that your local library purchase it as well, but they have no budget. So even better, if you don't want one for yourself, buy a hard copy and donate it so that everyone else can dig into some of the fascinating research and case studies that we were not able to get to on the program today. So with that said... um, Dana, it's been awesome having you. Thank you so much for the book. I'm excited to look at the Lincoln Project stuff, which I will put in the show notes. And to our listeners at home, I hope you are staying socially connected and physically distanced. Everyone take care of yourselves and we will uh, hear you next time on the New Books Network. Thank you, Lee.